Um, but continuing on, though, just the message of Christ's incarnation, thank you, Ken, uh, is, of course, fitting, as we've all just, you know, been celebrating Christmas the last few weeks. And if you're good Presbyterians like me, you know, we celebrate for several days, not just even one day during the year, you know, as you celebrate Advent and even leading up to Epiphany. But this passage in the Gospel of John in verses 1 through 13 extends far beyond just uh, the simple message that we hear about time and time again at Christmas time. Uh, this passage is of further reaching importance for us even now, especially in our own society, as this is very much a pivotal time in our own nation's history, a time when so many things are under attack, including our own religious freedom and ability to even worship, as Ken was praying for earlier. But how so in particular? You know, how is this time so pivotal in our nation's history Well, I think this gospel really addresses this theme here for us. Uh, See, the gospel of John deals especially with this idea of belief from beginning until the very end. But here in John 1, it especially addresses the theme of disbelief or unbelief, if you will. See, you and I in today's culture are now, whether we want to admit it or not, truly uh, just immersed and even plagued by a spirit of just general jadedness, if we're being quite honest, and cynicism and augmented tribalism. If you've spent any time at all on social media, you see it day in and day out, one versus the other, and even a festering distrust of those in authority over us. For instance, even in recent years, we all have witnessed catastrophic world-altering events. I mean, obviously, international wars between Russia and Ukraine and Uh, economic panic, even in our own culture, and especially rampant sexual immorality, uh, let alone a a widespread virus that truly affected all of us, uh, especially as a hoist of exploitative uh, reactions to that same virus impacted each one of our own livelihoods for the last three years now. And so as a result of all these things and so many more, uh, tension is now in the air. we, We feel it, if we're being honest. We feel it deep in our own souls, even. The American church herself, I believe, has been under so much fire by not only those outside of the church, the visible church, but even especially all the more by those within the church who once claimed the name Christian for themselves. See, men and women who uh, were bound to the evangelical church even until recent years, who once claimed that name Christian, have begun to turn, sadly, one by one, to false gospels. False gospels that were solely governed by the fake god of self, if you will. Now, these include, sadly, many uh, well-known Christian artists. And I won't name names here, but we probably have heard different news articles even recently of former Christian artists and authors and even public speakers who have begun to turn one by one away from the historic faith in the marketplace of ideas. Sadly, these people some of whom have been and are really loved by many of us, have begun to, in their own words, just deconstruct their faith. And I think the key reason behind a lot of that was that they lacked biblical repentance. You know, biblical repentance from sin seemed to not have been a part of their Christian experience, nor the desire to follow after God's holiness and, and imitate him as dearly loved children. I'm sure that I'm not alone, uh, myself even, 
And having seen so many of those whom I once had great respect for just walk away from the faith and become gradually allured and enticed by the ideas of self-indulgence in that spiritual darkness that we're about to read of here, rather than finding their hope and their comfort and their joy in the light of life himself. Though all of this seems to be a strange phenomenon, this, this culture that we admittedly live in, that the present day church is now experiencing, this event, this chaotic time to even live in, is hardly a new event in the course of human history. See, even as early as the first century AD church, there were those amongst the visible church who were deconstructing the Christian faith. So many who sought to not just deconstruct the gospel of grace, but even lead others astray away from the truth himself, Jesus Christ. Such was the cultural context into which John the Apostle, here in John chapter 1, was writing. And so verses 1 through 13, which we'll look at specifically today, are especially designed to address the suppression of God's truth in humankind's unrighteousness. And all of this is done by answering the folly of human sin with, thank God, the light of Christ. And John accomplishes this act of addressing deconstructionism, if you will, by imparting by the Holy Spirit saving faith in the person and work of Jesus, proclaiming to them this is the only name given among men under heaven even by which we must be saved. And this message of the gospel, which we will unpack here today, is then forever faithful and true and good and even beautiful to us who now hear even to this day. And so, Church of Christ, I invite you now to hear the precious and holy words of God here given to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through, 15, uh, 1 through 13, rather. The Word of God here says the following to us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Into his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who, this is key, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, with this holy word of God fresh in our minds and even in our hearts right now, Let's go ahead and come before our God in prayer as we dive into this passage more fully. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have indeed, first things first, given us your holy word, designed to, by your own working, impart faith to us, faith to believe in Christ as Savior for those who are not yet believers, but even faith for us who are believers to become more captivated and more enlivened 
by your unfailing love as is presented to us in this gospel. So Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time. This time where we have to uh, just simply settle a little while in the midst of our busyness, of our lives, and our work, and our normal routines. To take a break, though, from these things and to feed and feast even upon the precious word of Christ, which alone is able to save our souls. We pray, O oh God, that in this time that your word would ring true as it is, that it would resonate deeply within our souls, that I myself as the mouthpiece in this time would simply uh, be not in the picture or not uh, in any way detracting from your glory, but rather that your glory would be manifest here through the preaching of your word, through the proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so we pray for your anointing upon this time, that your word would speak deeply to our hearts, and that Jesus himself will be savored and sought after within us and by us for your glory and for our own goodness as a result. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Church, again, it is, of course, so good to be here with you to be able to uh, dive into this passage this morning. And as I shared a moment ago, we live in an age of deconstruction. So that will be one of the themes today. And I realize that's kind of a bit of a hard theme to tackle. It's one that I know I've been personally affected by, seeing so many friends walk away from the faith even. But it's an important theme for us, I believe, to talk about, especially in a church environment like this, to face the reality of, of those who have walked away. See, each one of us, though, in this age of deconstructionism, uh, have seen a culture that has been uh, more and more captivated by this idea of seeking to unlearn truth. That's really the nature of deconstructionism. Uh, For those who might not be too apt on that that, uh, kind of key phrase or key word these days, deconstructionism seeks to take truth and dismantle it and then rebuild it after their own form or fashion or even religion. And so this passage, again, deals with this. Now, of course, living in this era of deconstructionism, we have seen the three primary institutions that God has ordained over us, that being the church, the government, and even the family unit, all be attacked by this same deconstructive behavior and way of thinking that has been embraced by our culture. For instance, the family unit in even recent months, in recent years, has been undermined and even redefined by unjust rulings, even in recent months. The civil authorities, who are meant to protect the church and the good of the people and even our own worship, have proven over the last few years, generally speaking, to not have the best interest of God's people and the church by name in mind. And furthermore, the church herself, especially in America, has begun to suffer a general attitude toward her, ranging from everything like perceived obsolescence to false accusations of her character to even a flat-out vitriolic hatred of her own existence. In the past few months alone, we have seen, to name names here even, uh, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act pass with astounding numbers in both the Senate and the House. Marriage being redefined, so to speak, before our own eyes, and biblical marriage between a man and a woman being sidelined. And of course, now we see the church being placed off to the side and even directly in the line of fire as these developments take place. 
Furthermore, even personal preferred pronouns, as they're called, are being pushed upon men and women like you and me in the workplace. And to put it very carefully, even children are being affected by these things nowadays. Children themselves are being indoctrinated through, to put it very lightly again, story times, if you will, in public libraries and public places. And this idea of indoctrinating children with false ideas regarding how God has designed us is spreading like gangrene in our nation. All these events and more, of course, morally oppose God, the creator himself of law and order, and the work of his church, even in the world. They oppose these things. And so believers like you and I are not at all at this point in time like that righteous man Lot in the heart of Sodom. We find ourselves being pushed to the outskirts of society. But I want us to know this, that as evil gets more and more dark, or so it seems at least, This is not lost on our God who is holy and good and gracious toward us in all of his dispositions. Rather, this actually, I believe, pains the heart of God to see his people suffer the way that our church here in the States is nowadays. And as believers now, as those who've been given the Holy Word to to guide us and to direct our lives and even to train us in righteousness against all odds, we are understandably those who never before like this have been made to best see the division and the discord and the disunity that we're seeing for what it is. After after all, our own eyes have been enlightened by the way, the truth, and the life himself by name, Jesus Christ, who chose to redeem each one of us from our own folly and wicked ways. Jesus didn't need to do this. He didn't need to rescue us from our own darkness but he wanted to. And that's in many ways the message that we see here in John, that Jesus enters into the darkness in order to redeem and seek and save the lost. And so because of God's gracious condescension that we see here in John 1, in the birth of Christ, we, as an effect of his coming to us, are no longer numbered among those who once groped around in the darkness seeking after their own separate quest to satiate their sinful desires. However, the rest of the world still lives in this same way, don't they? We see it day in and day out. The world still dwells in this kind of vile and very lonely and pitiful darkness. So, of course, we pray for them wholeheartedly in earnestness for their salvation. But in practice, how do we, as those who have seen the light of life, continue to, against all odds, hold, to the, uh, hold steadfast rather, to the faith that was once delivered to the saints? How do we hold fast? Hold fast? How do we hold to that faith in the midst of a culture that is just unraveling before our own eyes? When men around us seem to stoop to the level of beasts like King Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter 4, how do we withstand this tide of culture? Well, I believe the answer is fairly simple. We must return to the basics of the Christian faith. So John the Apostle provides us with answers to these three simple yet very foundational questions concerning our faith. First of all being, who is Jesus? The second question we'll find here implicitly answered is the question, why should we believe in this Jesus? And thirdly, how do we then take comfort in Jesus? So who is Jesus? Why should we believe in him? And how can we then take comfort in him? 
Well, surely I understand each of these are very much Sunday school level questions to ask, right? Very basic to us. But each one of these are so vital for us to not just comprehend, but truly internalize in order to grow in our own faith, but also help to reconstruct the broken faith of other people around us through sound biblical teaching. And so in verses 1 through 5, we begin to see John answer this implicit question, who is Jesus? And he answers this with such incredible profundity. I'd like to invite us to humbly hear again how he begins these first couple of verses here. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, without a doubt, these words echo and mirror the very opening of the Scriptures themselves in Genesis 1. In fact, the Greek text of John 1, 1 matches perfectly in form and even in sentence structure with the uh, Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, for instance, in John 1, 1, we read, in the beginning, the word was, period. That's how the Greek actually spells it out, in that order. In the beginning, the word was. And I'm sure you can hear the resonance of Genesis 1, 1 here, In the Genesis account, it says, in the beginning, God created. You see the symmetry between them, right? Between each of those three parts. And so it's no accident then that John equates this word of God here in John 1.1 with God the creator and the sustainer of all things in Genesis 1.1. For he had every reason to do so. Because the word of God is, of course, God himself. But this is not just a New Testament idea, this idea of the Word being God himself. Rather, throughout the entire Old Testament, we see uh, various placements of this idea of the Word of God as being a person. In fact, it was actually widely understood by the Old Testament believers that this Word of God, who was in the presence of God and even proceeded from God himself in acting upon the earth, was actually the divine person of the Messiah himself to come. And so this Messiah, or the divine word of the Lord, proceeded directly from God. And they understood the divinity there in the person of the word. In fact, even Old Testament believers who helped to uh, translate the Old Testament into not just Greek, the Septuagint, but also those who would translate it into Aramaic, known as the Targum, the Jewish Targum, actually took the liberty in their paraphrase of the Aramaic translation to include references to the word of God as the Messiah. They even added the words, the word of, before the Lord, because they understood this is the word divine. So, for instance, in the Targum, again, that Jewish Aramaic translation, we see the word of the Lord used even more often than the Hebrew. And it's always in reference to the Messiah, the divine redeemer and savior of his people, who was sent forth by God's own hand, to accomplish salvation. In several passages where the original Hebrew text just says things like, the Lord said, dot, 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 or the Lord spoke to so-and-so, the Jewish Targum actually clarifies this by saying, no, 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 that the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Or the word of the Lord said this, because they understood this as being the Messiah, even ahead of time. Now, I imagine most of us, if not any of us, could even read Aramaic, including myself. (laughs) But if all of a sudden we could read Aramaic, 
we would actually indeed see several of these examples of the word of the Lord, the divine person, the second person of the Trinity in Old Testament passages, such as Psalm 100, verses 1 through 2, and Hosea 1, 6 through 7, Genesis 31, verse 22, and even in the giving of the law in Exodus 20, verse 19, Jesus is there present, pre-incarnate. And so in each of these passages, the word of God is very notably so, not the written word of God, the scriptures, but rather is seen as the, what theologians call the essential word of God, the word of God in essence, the person of Jesus, who again is before the Father's presence and who speaks to his people in love. Furthermore, then, this proves to us that Jesus was always in the Father's presence from before time even began. It proves his divinity to us when we think of it in this way. And he wasn't merely there with God, but rather he was there active with the Father in the works of creation and salvation alike. In fact, the Greek, if I can Greek out a little bit in front of you, is not the Greek word with, literally meaning alongside with. The word with that we see in our English is actually really the word pros, having the idea of proceeding or, or coming out of or being there active in the event. So Jesus was just simply wasn't there with God. He was there active with God. And this notion of the word of God then is also clearly expressed for us, not just in this idea of the word of the Lord in the Old Testament, but also the wisdom of the Lord, as we see in Proverbs 8 and 30 as well. Concerning wisdom, who as a person was present with God by his side, even at the dawning of creation. Friends, this is none other than Jesus, our Savior, who has always been with God. Furthermore, this capital W word of God, if you will, is used of Jesus, not just in the Old Testament, but further on in the New Testament, by several of the writers, including Peter, John, James, the author of Hebrews, and Paul as well. And in all these passages where we see the word of God in the New Testament, he's displayed for us as a warrior, as a conqueror even, the kingly majesty who rides forth wherever his gospel is proclaimed and accomplishes the will of the Father. And furthermore, who even dispels the darkness and the darkened understanding of men by the glorious light of his grace. And so the word of God, or the logos of God, as some of us have probably heard, the logos, is not merely some philosophical idea invented by Plato or one of the uh, uh, Greek philosophers. It's not just this idea of reason or rationality, as I know I've been taught in the past as well. Rather, this idea of the logos, the word of God, is of biblical origin. So why does John then begin his account with this confusing term for us, admittedly, this idea of the word, the ministry of Jesus here as he dives into, why does he start off with the word itself as opposed to talking about the historic account like the other gospels start off with? Well, the answer is quite simple. See, he's intentionally, John, the gospel writer, he's intentionally setting before our eyes Jesus as the pre-existent Son of God in order that by believing in this Son of God, ordinary people like you and myself might have life in his name. The name of our Lord Jesus is, of course, indeed a mighty tower whom we can run into and find 
true safety, shalom, wholeness, and peace. Do you believe that? Well, friends, I imagine all of us here do believe that that is true. But don't we often live as though it's not? Don't we often find our shalom, our peace, our wholeness, etc., in other things in this life, especially when times get hard? For instance, when the bills begin to pile up, when we receive that hard-to-hear diagnosis from the doctor, when we talk about the morality of our nation and how it's just dissipating before our eyes, or when we feel the heavy weight of judgment from other people, what is the solution that you and I most often seek in those times of stress? Like me, it seems all too reasonable to, in those moments that test our faith, to rely upon our own selves and try to navigate each of these hard and and very real situations with our own clever or critical thinking. Of course, it's not to say that we shouldn't use sound judgment or discretion in how we respond to things, but how quickly do we turn to God in prayer, first thing? See, when our sense of peace or shalom, if you will, or wholeness is disturbed, we often end up exposing the idols of our hearts that we really do worship deep down. Again, in our American culture, living in a time now when we have all been met with various stressors, especially since COVID, not just as communities, but even as individuals especially, it's no wonder then that the fake God of self has begun to surface all the more. That people look to ideas like self-help as a kind of go-to religion of choice in our society. In recent years, even the practice of self-guided meditation has become more popular. It's begun to creep into even the lives of people in the church. And our reliance upon man-made practices, all with the goal of attaining inner peace, have begun to gain traction. Again, even within communities of Christians, ourselves. I've seen it even in recent weeks. I won't name names here, but um, the readiness to which even we as evangelicals, kind of that broad evangelical world, if you will, um, has begun to so much more readily put false teachers before us who are merely tickling our ears and fashioning their teaching after our own passing interests. Uh, This kind of event around us, as people sway so easily, is jarring to say the least. But this systemic problem of false teaching and and even us accruing false teachers around us is hardly a new thing. See, such was the case, again, as I mentioned earlier, at the time of the gospel being written itself, the time of John himself even. See, historically speaking, scholars agree that John was most likely directly confronting the errors of the people known as the Gnostics, the Greek Gnostics of this era in the first century. These are people who were uh, what you might call the the primary or like the leading heretics of this day. And there were two men in particular who seemed to stand above the rest in this first century, around the time when John was writing this. These men were both called Cherinthus, kind of that Latinized name, and Ebion by name, along with their followers called the Ebionites. These men, again, Cherinthus and Ebion, household names, right? We all know these names. (laughs) Just kidding. But these men were of great influence upon the early church. Uh, Cherinthus, in particular, deceived many within the church into believing that God did not actually create the physical world. And furthermore, that Jesus himself was merely a man who was just anointed by God 
for just his earthly ministry from the time of his baptism up until his crucifixion. And then he just took this Holy Spirit away from Jesus, you know. Definitely heresy <laughs> of the worst kind. And likewise, Ebion of the Ebionites, uh, the one who uh, founded that movement, he did not believe as well in the eternality of Jesus. But rather, he believed that Jesus was merely a prophet who was solely a man and not truly the Son of God who took on flesh. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Word. But these heresies, of course, do not accord with the biblical witness concerning Jesus, do they? Thankfully, our God is so gentle, even toward us, who, um, because of sin, have taken on false ideas about God. God is so gentle in how he corrects us. And so I love that this is demonstrated for us very vividly here in John chapter 1, how he corrects his people. See, here, unlike the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which uh, the Lord also inspired, of course, and set forth the life and ministry of Jesus, here in the Gospel of John, the emphasis that the Lord put upon John's heart was to address false teaching and to correct it with biblical and healthy and whole teaching. And so the Lord inspired John to write yet a fourth gospel on top of the first three so that men and women would rightly disbelieve the false notions about God that were floating around in the church in that day. But in the positive, he actually wrote them, as we see later on in John chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's a very positive message. And so from the beginning of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus now set before us as the Word who is indeed, as our creeds even say, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father and by whom all things were made. As John 1 verses 4 through 5 say of Jesus, it says, In him was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it cannot overcome it. Friends, these names that I mentioned earlier, like Cherenthus and Ebion, they've been long forgotten, haven't they? In fact, I imagine, you know, jokes aside, that none of us have never even heard of these guys' names until this morning, right? Cherenthus and Ebion. And so fittingly so, their message which attacked the beloved name of Jesus was buried with them 2,000 years ago. And likewise, we can take comfort in this, that those who proclaim false gospels in our own day will not and cannot stand the test of time. And so the so-called gospel of social justice that a lot of us are familiar with will not stand at the end. The pragmatism that a lot of us have known that was birthed out of the 20th century Protestant movement in which the church tried to seek out and even build up their own version of the kingdom of heaven here on earth has already failed. And today's postmodernism postmodernistic God of self, which just throws away intellect and reason and reliance upon the scripture, is already failing before our eyes. It cannot stand. But the unchanging message of the eternal Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us will never fail, friends. 
I love the way that 1 John 2, verse 8 puts it, that the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. In fact, friends, the darkness that we experience will never be able to overcome the light of life himself, namely Christ Jesus our Lord, as a result of this act of God. And so Jesus is presented to us in all his glory in John 1, 1 through 5, But continuing on in verses 6 through 9, we now see John, the gospel writer, answering the following question for us then. So why should we believe in Jesus? And this, of course, will be a shorter point, as you can imagine. But this question appeals not just to then the nature of truth or doctrine, but now it appeals more so to the goodness of God, even our own welfare. It appeals to us as people, not just our own minds. Well, church, church, the nature of truth is that it is inherently good. Truth is good for us. And the reason why Jesus is described for us later on in verse 14 and also in 17 as being full of both grace and truth, which will be part of next week's sermon, is not arbitrary. Rather, grace and truth go hand in hand. And so to live in the truth is to enjoy all of its benefits, the, the goodness of it. But on the contrary, to live by lies is to live as in the dark, riddled with all kinds of anxiety concerning what we don't know and crippling fear concerning what we do know and utter confusion in the in-between. But the Bible tells us that our God, thankfully, has not given us a spirit of fear, but rather of power and love and of a sound or more literally redeemed mind, a saved mind. And so by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior, he has made the light of his glorious grace to shine upon us who once had darkened understandings, darkened and alienated and godless state of beings. How exactly then does God shine forth the spotlight of his truth into our sin-sick, terribly wearied human condition? Well, he speaks true goodness to us, period. That's his answer. I think it's ironic that we read for uh, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 earlier. This wasn't planned, but it was actually in my message as well. And I want us to hear this word again, but Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, as we read earlier, tells us long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, and catch this, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So, friends, we can trust in this fact of God's goodness that he chose lovingly to reveal Jesus ahead of time through the Old Testament prophets the last of whom, a little bit of trivia for you, was not Malachi, but actually John the Baptizer. And this is why it might seem a little random. Like, why is John the Baptist in here all of a sudden? It's because he's proving a point here. John was trustworthy. We can believe his message. (laughs) This is why God chose John to go before Jesus, to prepare a way for his ministry so that the ministry of Jesus and all of his active obedience on our behalf would have its full intended effect as he fulfilled all righteousness. 
And so John, we read of in the Gospels, came baptizing with water, of course, calling on men and women to repent from their sin and to stand before God with clean and purified and sprinkled consciences in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so John 1, 6 through, uh, 6 through 8, these verses here state very clearly that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came, it says, to bear witness about the light, as a witness even, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. It says further on that he was not the light, but rather to, came witness, uh, to bear witness about the light. Now, friends, though these verses may seem to be a little out of place for us at first glance, they are really here to prove a valuable point to us that, again, God has chosen to speak to us, and that is how he gets his message across. He has spoken to us, though, not just through the prophets, but through his Son, the true light who is worthy to be trusted. But aside from Jesus, whom we can fully trust with our whole hearts, and we should, of course, fully trust, who is himself the truth, we must pay very close attention to those whom we place the gift of our trust in. See, so many Christians today are so quick to just sign away their trust to the latest and greatest celebrity pastors or public speakers even. And I saw this even this past week um, at a conference that was going on even where people are so quick just to give their trust to somebody who was a charismatic speaker in front of their eyes. However, the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians 4 especially, that ministers of the gospel are are merely stewards. They're meant to be humble. They're meant to be stewards who hold the, the mysteries of God and who carry the precious treasure of the gospel within broken and fragile jars of clay. And this treasure that true, healthy teachers even have, this treasure has a name they hold the precious name of Jesus, the pearl of great price, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all things, the Lamb who was slain, the Holy Messiah, the merciful Redeemer of his blood-bought people, and the one who was rich beyond all splendor, and yet who all for love's sake became poor. This Jesus, not those who teach, but rather the one whom we teach, the one whom we proclaim, is worthy of all of our trust. And more importantly, he is worthy of all of our faith. Again, friends, there are so many voices nowadays competing with the voice of Jesus, aren't there? These men and women serve, unfortunately, as wolves in shepherd's clothing, either peddling false gospels before us or even exploiting the real gospel for selfish gain. And the only way to see these false shepherds for who they really are, is to observe both their life and their doctrine. For instance, if I, and I'm held to the same standard, of course, but if I or any other preacher were to ever stand before you proclaiming to you the scriptures even in all of their power, and yet live as though it had no value for my own life, you'd have every right to pursue another teacher or another shepherd to deliver the word of God to you. Rather, those who teach and preach Christ should be putting before you Christ and Christ alone. And he should be exalted in your midst every single week. So thankful as I was preaching last week uh, to the folks at Redeemer, 
um, for David Vance and others who preach there, and for Pastor Ken as well here, for those who have continued to preach the gospel faithfully to you. Praise God for his faithfulness in this way. But may we always be on guard against false teaching for what it is and how it detracts us from Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote concerning these same things in 2 Timothy 4, where he says this powerful statement regarding preaching the truth. He says this, I I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he says this to them, preach the word, be ready in season and even out of season, reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and understanding and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Friends, we can believe the account of John the baptizer here as he bore witness to Jesus because he did these things. He was a teacher who proclaimed Jesus and nothing short. And so we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke the same testimony that John the baptizer did not dare to claim any of the glory for preaching God's word, but rather he bore witness to Jesus and Jesus alone. In Matthew 3, 11 through 12, for instance, he says this, declaring to the believing Israelites, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. Think of that idea of the harvest. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John the baptizer was fully aware then that his pronouncement of the coming king, Jesus, was not about him. And so he dared not to try try to even steal a single ray of light from the radiant and glorious Christ. Friends, we can trust that God is pleased to use such meek and humble and selfless witnesses like John the baptizer and those who preach and teach faithfully, who bear witness to Christ and simply get out of the way as they do so. But do you also recognize that you yourselves are also witnesses? This isn't about the person delivering the word alone. This is about all of us as believers who bear witness to Jesus. Each one of us have a part in proclaiming the glorious riches of Christ's grace one to another. And so in your working, are you quick to express gratitude for your maker, for giving you the skills necessary for that labor to which he has appointed you? In your speaking, are you mindful of the soul's of those with whom you are engaging, and how even your words, even the smallest of phrases, have the power to either strengthen or sabotage those people before you. In the midst of your thinking, are you aware of how your own inner dialogue and ruminating thoughts can either draw you toward or away from the things of God? See, church, if we desire to be a people that bear witness to the true light, which is certainly capable of giving light to everyone, as we read of here, We must become those who exercise our faith by taking every thought and every word captive in our minds so as to think God's thoughts after him. It's in his providence. We are those who now come after John the baptizer. 
2,000 years even, right? Quite a long while between. But on this side of the cross, we now as believers here with the full word of God before us have a fuller comprehension of Jesus' rescue mission from beginning to end. John could only see through types and shadows of the Old Testament. We now see more fully. If John the baptizer, who couldn't see things fully, even as he was proclaiming Christ, could do so, nonetheless, how much more should we be witnesses, you and I alike, as those who have tasted and seen the goodness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his atoning death and in his resurrection especially? After all, we are among those of whom the prophet Isaiah had prophesied thousands of years in advance of us, even here. We are those people who once walked in darkness, but who have now seen a great light. We are that spiritual nation whom Christ has multiplied in his good pleasure by his spirit and whose joy has now been increased. We are those who rejoice now before God as with joy at the harvest for the yoke of our burden the staff for our shoulder, and the rod of our oppressor, namely sin itself, has been broken down and defeated by our God and Savior. And how did he accomplish this great act? Well, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, gave a spoiler long in advance. It tells us this much. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Take delight in that fact that he has done this. See, these sweet words of comfort now assure us that the truth and goodness of God are set before us in the word, namely Jesus. And so this leads us to our third and Final and short point for this morning. How can we then take comfort in Jesus? Well, John 1, 10 through 13 explains it to us in this way, that our comfort is laid up and stored up even within the very will and nature of God himself. He is, in fact, our comforter. For our God is the one who has called us to be his children, not of anything that belongs to us, not of our uh, you know, inherent personalities, as, as pleasant as they might be, or of our own dispositions, which are always perfect, by the way, right? But rather purely of and by his good pleasure. John 1.10 states it this way, that Jesus, the true light, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. They were blind to him when he came, in other words. And so with these words, John harkens back to the first few verses of the gospel, but even further back to, again, the creation account, namely to the fall in Genesis 3, the nature of sin. See, all things, of course, were made through the word, and eternal life is to be had in him, and yet the spiritual darkness of sin has alienated the mind of man from understanding and even submitting willfully to the things of God. And the day that our first parents ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they failed in that moment and continuing on to uphold the legal declaration of life that was promised on the basis of their obedience to God. And yet, even in Genesis 3, in response to our blindness and alienation in our minds, 
God foretold that he would, from his incomprehensible heart of sheer unbridled grace, send forth the Redeemer of his elect, whom he would raise up from the offspring of Eve in order to defeat our ancient foe, that serpent, and so put death to death in the death of Christ upon the cross. God, in other words, gave his literal word to his people in the fullness of time. As Galatians 4.4 tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born under a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. This too, then, is what John describes for us in our passage. And John 1 verse 11 showcases for us the most peculiar message ever given. It says this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but... Here's the good news. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Given the knowledge of Christ that you and I hold so dearly, how could the world ever reject this good God? How could the world choose death and destruction and decay over the light of life himself? And furthermore, how could so many people of even the household of Israel, visible Israel, not see Christ for who he was even back then. Well, friends, such is the nature of sin. It it blinds us. It blinds us to the sovereign mercy of God, and it even enslaves us to our own unspeakable passions. But such also, in a good sense, is the nature of God's divine election and choosing of us, apart from our own people and persons. See, we who have faith in him are, of course, not those who had deserved any better than the rest of the world. Rather, we are those on whom God has been pleased, and that's the key word is pleased, to shine the light of his grace upon us, to melt our ice-cold, hard hearts of stone and give us new, warm, living hearts of flesh, graced with new heavenly desires. But for the grace of God, we too, who were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, would have continuing, of course, following that same course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which we've been talking about. But God, Ephesians 2.4 tells us that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace, you have been saved. Praise God for his unfailing love poured out over us. This point, of course, is more than deserving of its own sermon, but I'll hold off on that for later. (laughs) But I do want to ask each one of us now a simple question as we begin to wrap up. Friend, do you simply know and adore even God's delight over you? Do you know the smile of the Father over you because of what Christ has done for you? So many of us as believers are driven by our own performance before other people, or our own ability to achieve things and grand endeavors and to maintain a good name before other people. But one of the core truths about Christianity is that the God, God the Father by name even, is both just and even the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And so if you are a believer in the risen Son of God, you have every reason in the world to believe and to know and to rest upon the fact that the Father looks upon you with the same 
affections that he has toward his only beloved son. His great love, he has given once ruined, destitute, hopeless sinners like you and myself who now simply believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ the right, the authority, and the precious privilege of being called children of God. So many of us, like myself, have been born into the visible church. We're so thankful for the covenant children that God gives to us, right? Even as we celebrate the birth of a new little one in our own midst. But true believers are those who have been born of God. So friend, brother and sister in Christ, do you know that you are a chosen son or daughter of the living God? A son or daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A son or daughter who has been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Not even our own will, but of God. After all, it was the will of God that set forth his plan, which bought your redemption from sin. It was the heart of God which sought you in the midst of your own waywardness. It was the blood of his own son which brought you into the everlasting kindness of God that you now are privileged to enjoy. As we conclude, I want to leave you with these wonderful words from an old uh, Dutch hymn, Christmas Carol, really. It's very fitting for this time of the year. And it says this of our great God and Savior Jesus. It says this, Come and stand amazed, you people. See how God is reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See this gift, his newborn child. See the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness destitute. This part always gets me, but see how humankind received him. See him wrapped in swaddling bands, who as Lord of all creation rules the wind by his commands. See him lying now in a manger without sign of reasoning, word of God to flesh surrendered. He is wisdom's crown, our king. And this final verse is my prayer for all of us this morning. It wraps up by saying this, O Lord Jesus, God incarnate, who assumed this humble form, counsel me and let my wishes to your perfect will conform. Light of life, dispel my darkness. Let your frailty strengthen me. Let your meekness give me boldness and let your burden set me free. O Emmanuel, my Savior, let your death be life for me. Friends, with this in mind, let's come before our God in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that as we have enjoyed and even celebrated the giving of your word to us, that we now ready our hearts in this time to receive by faith uh, time, the, the sacrament of communion, the Lord's Supper with you. So Lord, we are so thankful for the fact that you have uh, not just given us your word spoken, but here in a moment as Pastor Ken uh, leads us in this time of worship as we go forward, we will have a time and opportunity to give forth more praise to your name, even as you give us spiritual food for our own refreshment. So Lord, we are thankful for this hour. We are thankful for times like these where we have to break from our normal routines again. And just rest in the fact that you delight in us. 
through your beloved and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray all this in his holy and powerful name. Amen.